Welcome to another episode of Ruby for All. Andrew was not able to join me today, but it's okay because I have an awesome guest, Brittany Martin. Welcome to the show, Brittany. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Jolie. I am seriously honored to be here. I am absolutely honored to have you. I couldn't wait to get you on after the RubyConf mini podcast panel. I have been wanting to get you on, but you feel like too out there for me to go ask. So it was really great that you kind of offered for me so I didn't have to kind of reach out and ask you. So thank you so much for coming on. There's a lot of people that already know you, but if you could give a brief introduction of yourself for those who don't. Absolutely. So as Julie has alluded to, my name is Brittany Martin. I've been a co-host of the Ruby on Rails podcast since 2018. I was an IC for a long time and I'm a very proud Rubyist, but I'm coming up on one year since I was promoted into being an engineering manager at Texas. So currently I manage all the feature developers at Texas. And I'm most famous for being the official president of the Andrew Mason fan club. But my adoration of Julie likely means that I'm running for office for a second time. (laughs) And like I said, I am really honored to be here. And what I wanted, and this is the pitch that I said to Julie, is that I am such a fan of this podcast. You've done such an amazing job consistently putting out content. We need more content for junior developers. We need more people in the Ruby community. I had pitched the idea of coming onto the podcast to talk about integrations just because I think it's such a major part of software development. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. And also, since Andrew isn't here, I think we're going to have to bring you on again so that we can (laughs) have a conversation together. To me, that is good news. I will take it, Jolie. So my first question for you before I get into it is, have you built an integration before, maybe at Codecademy or maybe when you were going through your boot camps and things like that? Do you have experience of integrating to another software platform? I have, but if I had to do it again, I don't think I could just remember what I've done. And I think in part it was because I just wanted to get the thing done. So I didn't really look into exactly how it all worked. And I guess that happens a lot just because I feel like I'm behind and I want to just get the thing out. I'm so happy that you're here to help me kind of talk through it. The thing that I had worked on was I integrated Slack with CircleCI to alert us and mention us when a deploy is happening or has completed. Oh, I've done integrations with Slack before. For the listeners, at the simplest level, integrations are the process of combining two or more things to create a whole, which sounds really nebulous, but really for businesses... The term integration often refers to software or system integration, which means you bring together multiple business systems, so multiple SaaS platforms, like this would be a good example with Slack and CircleCI. Those are two different platforms so that they can operate as a collaborative unit. And it basically allows information to be shared between the two connected systems. To me, there's two different types of integrations. It's either you're being integrated to, like someone is using your webhooks or using your API, or it's your responsibility to integrate with another platform. I know for me, as someone who's pretty involved in our roadmap at work, and I'm really involved with hiring, you know, integrations are really important to us because it usually increases productivity because you just have to do the data one time. So let's say you have platform A, 
and platform B, if you integrate them together, if I put data into platform A and it's integrated to platform B, then it's just going to move that data from A to B and I don't need to input it into B again. You reduce data duplication. And honestly, the more integrations you have and the more that your customers are using them, those customers tend to be really sticky. People like their processes. They like their workflows. And, you know, if you have the right integrations and your customers are using those integrations, they tend to not churn, which is kind of cool. And then the other thing that I really love about integrations is say you want to build a feature on your platform and it's going to be really expensive and difficult to do. You don't have any developers on your team who have any experience doing that. Well, why not just partner and integrate with a platform where that's what they do instead of you having to write the code and guess? integrate with another platform. So that way you can provide that holistic experience for your customers. Sounds like a great way to outsource. Can you provide some examples of maybe those two types of integrations just to have like, I do very well with examples. So anything concrete that I can think about if you have any. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm probably going to keep using, you know, my current work. So Textus is an enterprise text messaging application It is a Ruby on Rails API. And so we have a lot of integrations. Typically, our customers are using our platform to send messages, but then they want those messages to log into other CRMs. So that way they can see a holistic history of that customer, that contact. And a lot of our customers, what they're doing is recruiting. They might send an email to a contact. They might send a text message. That person might send in a job application. That would be a situation where Textus is integrating to the CRM. What we're doing is we're reaching out to the CRM. We're looking at the API that they have available to us. And we're writing code to write those text messages to that platform. So that's an example where we're integrating to them. Now, on the flip side, there are some platforms that are too small for us where we can't justify writing that integration. And instead, we have a feature where it's called webhooks and we can dig into what a webhook is. But what that does is anytime we send a text message, you can configure our platform so that we will send you a webhook in real time. And those smaller platforms essentially write code that is constantly listening for that webhook to come in. And then they write that note onto the CRM platform. So those are like kind of two different integrations. And the way that I like to look at it, because I do love fitness, it's kind of like a push or a pull. So you're either pushing information to the second platform or they are essentially pulling that in from your API or they're listening to webhooks. So my example, working with CircleCI and Slack, so I feel like CircleCI is sending data to Slack. So maybe Slack is listening. So there's two different ways that integration could have been set up. So essentially what you were looking for is CircleCI is doing a run and you want to know whether or not your build is a success or a failure. Is that fair? Yes. And when it happens so that I'm not just sitting, waiting to go to the next step. I think we have all sat through long builds, just crossing your fingers. that You're going to get green so that way you can deploy and get rid of it. So I totally have been there, Jolie. <laughs> so if CircleCI has a direct integration to Slack, then what could possibly be happening there is that when CircleCI has that successful run, they are pinging, like they've written the code to ping Slack's API. And then that's creating that post event 
and then it's getting posted into your Slack channel. The other way around is, is if CircleCI refuses to integrate to Slack, like they won't write the code to actually ping Slack API. If CircleCI has webhooks available, and so I will define what a webhook is. Webhook is kind of thought as an API that is driven by events rather than requests. So instead of one application making a request to another, so in this case, it would be CircleCI making a request to Slack. It's basically a service that allows one program to send data to another as soon as that particular event takes place. Mm, Got it. So in your example, if let's say CircleCI refused to write that code to be able to ping the Slack API, and instead CircleCI has a service configured where someone can go in and generate a webhook for their customers, then what would happen is after the CircleCI run has completed, a webhook would be sent in real time-ish. I always say it's real time-ish mm-hmm. because it takes a couple seconds to come through. But then what that would mean is that Slack is listening for that webhook. It would ping that post request and then, you know, you would see that event. So it's kind of cool. Sometimes you don't know if it's already been all configured for you. You don't know whether or not someone is pushing data to someone or if someone's listening for the data. But I think it's important to have both of those options available for your own customers should they want to integrate to you. Cool. That makes a lot more sense now to me. You may go over this, but how... Do they know, I'm assuming like there's some authorization in place, but how does they know it's us and the specific event? So for both of them, typically with APIs, you're dealing with tokens. You are going into the platform and you're authenticating to the platform. So a good example, Texas is integrated with Salesforce. When our customers get set up with Salesforce, they go onto our platform and there's a UI with an authorization button where they click that button and say, authorize Salesforce to talk to Textus. And it brings them to Salesforce where they need to log into Salesforce and verify who they are. And then that connection is now made. And then anytime that Textus is pulling or pushing data from Salesforce for that customer, it just works. So that is the easy way to do it. You get into like refresh tokens and bearer tokens. The nice thing is if you do things with OAuth, it tends to just work and you don't really have to think about it. On the other side with webhooks, we get a lot of questions around webhooks because a lot of our customers want to accumulate every single text message they send throughout the day in their own database. Now, some of our customers send out millions of text messages a day. So the idea that they would reach out to our API and just continually be pulling us and say, hey, text us, what do you have that's new? What do you have that's new? It becomes really nuts. And to be honest, we probably end up rate limiting them and telling them to stop because they're overwhelming our platform. Instead, we offer webhooks so that every time they send a text message, we send a webhook to the customer and they're listening for that webhook. And then they just add that data to their database. Now, to answer your question, how do they know that that's okay? We have specific headers in our webhooks, and that's in our documentation. So they configure their firewalls to allow those kind of webhooks to come through. So in some ways, like APIs are definitely way more secure, but webhooks, if you do them right, are pretty secure. Got it. When you're talking about webhooks now, another concept comes to mind. It's called WebSockets. Oh, yeah. It's completely different, right? It is completely different. <laughs> However, I deal with WebSockets at work. And I've been doing a lot of hiring the past year. 
it's really funny that you asked that, Julie, because two of my core questions right now are, do you have experience with webhooks? And that tends to be the backend developers because they're the ones who are generating the webhooks. And on the flip side, WebSockets is the ability to use like a pub sub service to be able to refresh the page without refreshing the page. So basically forcing data up. And I'm always looking for front-end developers that have WebSocket experience because that allows us to display new text messages as they're coming in. So it's like Java and JavaScript. Are they the same? They're not, but the (laughs) names are pretty darn close. That is really funny. Cool. Thank you so much for explaining that. I'm going to have to listen to this again because I felt like there was a lot of really good information and some of the concepts are pretty hard for me to grasp at first take. So I'm really glad that we're being recorded. So one thing I will say is that we held a workshop at Texas and I'm really glad that we did this. We do this thing called Texas Chats where you can come up with a topic that you want to talk about. And we've had some really fun topics. We've done like summer bracelet camp. We're going to be doing make your own gnocchi at home. I'm really excited about that session. But then sometimes it's actually work related. We'll do trivia. And we did a session for our non-technical users or our non-technical employees. And when I say non-technical, I mean people that are just essentially not writing code all day. So what we did is we had a session on what an API is and what is a webhook because these employees are talking to customers every day. And sometimes those customers are really technical. And sometimes it's a requirement for them that we have an API available or that we have webhooks available. If you're not a developer and you're having to talk about those kinds of things, and even worse, you're having to sell those kinds of things, it's really hard. So we did that session and we got like a lot of really good questions. And we talked about why you would want to use an API, why you would want to use webhooks, and then a lot of questions around, well, are these things documented? It was really fun. And I highly recommend doing something at your company if integrations are really important to you. Cool. How long was the workshop? It was about an hour long and we had really good questions. And one thing that I really tried to do is I'm a big proponent. And I think you'll agree with me, Jolie, is that I try to bring in examples so that way they understand and relate. I did a lot of customer success stories. So I talked about a very large customer. This was an integration we didn't have to write. So this big company wanted to integrate with us We gave them our API documentation and they were able to use that documentation to integrate to us. And because of that, they brought a bunch of customers with them that we essentially didn't have to do anything, which was really nice for us. To me, that's a big success story for the API. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side, we had another customer that had requested a CSV download of every text message that they had sent that day on a daily rotation. And we didn't want to do that, Jolie. It's not secure. It's too large. I mean, it's gross, right? It's gross. Essentially, I had gotten on a call with that customer and said, hey, have you considered using webhooks? And they're like, what's a webhook? And so Mm -hmm. we went into that. And luckily, they had someone in the IT department that was able to reconfigure their application. So then going forward, every time they send a text message, we sent them a webhook. And then they were just filling up their database in real time. And it worked out really nicely because we didn't have to write any new code. That's really awesome. The number one reason startups fail is that they run out of money. There are so many ways for startups to lose money. Downtime should not be one. 
Recent studies found that downtime can cost $427 per minute for small businesses and up to $9,000 per minute for medium-sized businesses. That's every single minute. A monthly subscription with HoneyBadger helps you prevent costly downtime by giving you all the monitoring you need in one easy-to-use platform so you can quickly understand what's going on and how to fix it, which helps you stay in business. Get started today in as little as five minutes at HoneyBadger.io with plans starting at free. Yeah, you heard me, free. A big thank you to HoneyBadger for sponsoring this episode of Ruby for All. So bringing in customer success stories, how did you lay out this workshop? Was it a presentation? Was it question answer? Yeah, I think most people respond well to a slide deck. As (laughs) someone who has given a couple of conference talks, I'm not afraid of a slide deck. It's not my default mode, though. Typically, I'm not like the biggest slide deck person, but I know my audience. These are account managers. These are salespeople. These are people in finance who are very familiar with slide decks. We put together a slide deck and we had a basic understanding of what an API was and what we offer as an API. And then we had an explainer as to what a webhook is and why a customer would want to use a webhook. And then we had those success stories to really keep them engaged. And then we finish with a Q&A. I'm curious what your experience is. Usually with a group like that, it's really hard to get questions in real time. People are really afraid about sounding dumb, which is a shame because these concepts are really difficult. There's a lot of developers out there that are not familiar with how these things work, especially if they work at a company that isn't big about having a public API or webhooks enabled. I tried to guess questions that people would have. And even more so, I tried to get the audience to answer them. I'm not a fan of just blatantly calling on somebody who hasn't volunteered. However, if someone had volunteered, that was really great. We stepped through those questions and then that spawned more questions. And that's how we wrapped up the session. That's awesome. I really like that you talked about how people are afraid of asking questions because they maybe they feel like they're the only ones that has that question. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, I feel like I've been super vulnerable being on this podcast, asking all these questions, like putting myself in the, oh, are people going to think like, what? She's a year in and she doesn't know what a webhook is, as an example. So I'm curious, what kind of questions did you predict that people would have? I figured people would ask me a lot of questions around like, how does date time formatting work? And is it possible for someone to replay their webhooks? So that's a good question. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that when you send a webhook, we send it to you in real time. But if your service is down, Julie, what happens? And that's Mm -hmm. really kind of the responsibility of both sides. So for text us, we'll retry depending on the error. So, you know, if someone's database is down and we try to hit them and we're going to get like a 500 server error, we'll put it back into our background queue and we will retry over and over again until it comes back up until a certain point. So you definitely don't want to retry a webhook for like a year. That's just a waste of your time. But you want to come up with a reasonable number around retries. So that way the customer has the chance to be able to recoup that data But then also talking through, so what if that customer missed that webhook? Say they were down for a week. Just really Mm -hmm. catastrophic. They missed that webhook. Talking about how you can use webhooks and APIs together, because in theory, if the customer missed a week's of webhooks, they can turn around and query the API for that same information using Mm -hmm. the dates that they know they missed, get all those messages together, and then be able to fill their database back in. 
Gotcha. Oh, cool. I really liked that you came up with the questions ahead of time because I didn't really think of that. But maybe I would have if I sat down and actually thought a little bit more about webhooks. So I'm wondering if during a presentation like that or during a workshop, some people might not have questions because they don't have questions, but then they'll have them later on. So did you experience that where people might come later with questions? So I cheated a little. (laughs) We have a channel at work called Product Questions, and that Mm -hmm. is a safe place where those non-technical employees are able to put those kinds of questions in. I scanned the last couple of years of questions just to see what were recurring questions. The one thing that I always feel really bad about is we get the same question a lot just because, you know, we get new employees and they forget to search that channel to see if it's already been answered. And what I tend to do is whenever someone asks a question that's been repeated, I try to find the original thread and say like, hey, no big deal that you missed this, but like, here's the thread and it should explain everything that you need here. I feel a little bad. Is it a little bit of a let me Google that for you kind of vibe? But I think it's important not to reprint the same information over and over again. And it really begs the question, like, should all of this be moved to a wiki? Should it all be moved somewhere that everyone can access it so that way they feel more comfortable? Ooh, what a cool concept, a wiki. Because I run into that problem too. Sometimes when I'm searching Slack, maybe I'm just like Google, not typing in the right keywords or search thing, and then nothing is coming up. And then I'll put my message in and then they're like, oh yeah, I think it's because of this. And then they'll link me back to that other conversation. And I feel like it's great that you do link it back up because I think it also helps remind people like, oh yeah, I can go back and (laughs) search on my own. (laughs) So I have a question for you, Jolie. Whenever you built your integration between CircleCI and Slack, was that done in Ruby? And did you have any tools to help you like a gem that was already out there or anything like that? I don't think I used a programming language because I just recall going into Slack and looking at their documentation and trying to hook it up on Slack apps. And then we had a CircleCI yaml file okay which like showed all of the configurations and then i think i just use that to kind of configure like okay if i'm in this particular environment then send it to this channel but say that it's this type of environment because we do development staging and production so one thing that i like to talk about with rubius is if you find out that you need to write an integration to another platform so you're the one who's writing the code you're going to be hitting their API. The first thing I always do is whenever I know that that integration is coming up on the roadmap is I always check Ruby gems to see if an integration Mm -hmm. is already out there. And sometimes you get the wonderful gift where you find a gem that is well-maintained, even better if it's maintained by the company itself, because that's always a good sign, right? And then you can just use that to do the integration. I will say though, I've been burned many times where I just used a gem And then like a couple months into it, I realized I should have written it myself just because my use case was too different or the gem hadn't been well-maintained. I think we all remember the time where Facebook allowed people to integrate to Instagram. They had this wonderful Instagram gem so you could house all the photos and things and be able to display them on your Rails applications. And I remember when they took the gem away and that was really sad. 
Facebook went around, just deleted all of their gems and all their libraries in order to integrate with Instagram. And it just definitely sucked. So it's a good reminder to everyone, like always check Ruby gems to see if there is code out there already. So you're not reinventing the wheel, but please, please put it through an exhausted checklist and make sure that that's the right path to go down. Especially if you're a junior and you're put in charge of an integration, make sure that you're vetting that decision to use that gem with a senior member on the team. Awesome. That's a really good point. And actually reminds me a lot about something that Colin Gilbert has been working on. He went through RubyGems that currently connect to the Vimeo API and saw, oh, this particular one hasn't been updated for seven years or something like that. So it was a good reminder for you to also bring up. Sometimes these haven't been maintained or maybe people created them because it was a hobby of theirs. And so there are no maintainers. And so he decided to build one himself. Julie, I will admit right now that I'm one of them. I have a gem out there for Google Pay. I needed it at my last job. It was a ticketing system. People wanted to be able to have mobile tickets on their phone. There wasn't a gem out there in order to do that. So I ended up writing the code myself. I put it into our Rails application. But then I realized that it was actually pretty useful since there wasn't a gem out there. And so I extracted that code and put it into a gem and I published it because I was like, oh, this is me contributing to open source. Now I've left that job. I have no need for Google Pay or event ticketing. So from time to time, I get issues open where people will ask me if I'm considering like adding a feature to it. And the answer is usually if you want to write the code, I would be happy to review the code and happy to add it to the gem. But at this point, it's not a priority for me. I know that the gem is being used, but it's a small surface area of what that API is capable of. That is so cool that you did that. Now I'm kind of curious, do you prefer writing gems or creating an app? I would probably say like my comfort level is being in a Rails application because even though I am an engineering manager and I'm not writing nearly as much code as I used to, I'm currently working on a side project that is a Rails application, but I used to be a bootcamp mentor and a part of that was teaching them how to write gems. The thing I love about gems is they're so utilitarian. It's very clear how to deploy them. And I love the versioning around them and that you can keep it really concise and useful, but there is nothing like writing Rails. I really do love it. Yeah, that's awesome. I did write like a very tiny, silly, very silly (laughs) gem just to figure out what the process is to create one. And I think it's because it's not my comfort zone. So therefore, I'm kind of shying away from it. But it would be really cool to create something where it's helping somebody. I so agree. And going back on the topic of hiring juniors, when I'm interviewing juniors and they have written integrations, which to me are a huge plus, it means that you understand that integrations are important in this ecosystem. You have experience like looking at documentation, making requests, receiving data, writing tests against integrations, which could be a whole nother podcast. (laughs) But I really like it when developers have an opinion about the integration that they wrote to. Was the documentation up to chuff? Was it easy to write that integration? Was there a gem out there? Was it well-maintained? I love to hear a good integration story when I'm interviewing people. Well, listeners, you've heard that In interviews, you may be asked about integrations. So I think this is a really great episode for you to listen to. 
Brittany, can you also please share where listeners may find you? Absolutely. I can be found on Twitter and Mastodon under Britt J. Martin. And of course, please listen to the Ruby on Rails podcast. A lot of really exciting content coming in 2023. Looking forward to it. This is great. I've really enjoyed being here. I'm such a huge fan of this podcast. Seriously honored to be here. And Julie, can't wait to catch up again soon. Brittany, I'm so honored that you feel that way. I can't wait for you to come back on the show. And to the listeners out there, we will see you next week. Bye, everyone.